Pot of gold. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another exciting episode of Ramble by the River. I'm your host, Jeff Nesbitt, and we've got a great show for you today. It is Saturday, October 2nd, 2021. Special birthday shout out to the love of my life, Melissa Nesbitt. Happy Happy birthday, sweetie. I'm suddenly realizing I probably should have prepared more than that, and I'm panicking. Oh my God, she's probably looking at me right now. I hope she's laughing. Please be laughing. We got a great show for you today. My guest is Dr. David Shirazi. Dr. Shirazi is the director of the TMJ and Sleep Therapy Center of Los Angeles. It's a state-of-the-art private practices limited to the treatment of TMD, which is temporomandibular joint disorders, craniofacial pain, sleep breathing disorders, and craniomandibular orthopedics. His practice is part of the TMJ and Sleep Therapy Center International family, joining the ranks of over 65 global centers. He also does a lot of other stuff. That's just what he's doing right now. It was a really interesting talk as we go back through his professional history, which goes through acupuncture and Eastern medicine. He has a master's degree in Oriental medicine from Samra University. In 2007, he received the prestigious fellowship award from the American Academy of Craniofacial Pain an organization dedicated to the diagnosis and treatment of craniofacial pain and sleep breathing disorders. He's traveled all over the world, done some really cool education, learned some really cool things, and he's got some great stuff to share with us today. We even get into breastfeeding at a certain point. We talk about breastfeeding. And if there's one thing I know, it's that people wanna hear the opinions of two men about breastfeeding. So stay tuned for that. Oh man, this morning I embarrassed myself in front of my family. So we're getting ready for the day. And you know, it's your average day. Kids are going to school. Melissa's going to work, I'm going to work. And it's my turn to take our youngest out to drop her off at grandma's. So I'm getting stuff ready for her, getting her dressed. I'm I'm grabbing a paper bag for a quick lunch. And I go to get her, well, she calls them her nuts, but the, the trail mix, little pack of trail mix, individual packs, get them from Costco. And uh, I go to grab one and I reach up there and the box is empty. And I'm just something about the hectic morning, whatever, it irritated me and I was, I, I needed to write this wrong. Everybody knows that if you take the last thing, you remove the box. Common courtesy, everybody does it. It's just what you do. Take the last candy bar, remove the box. Take the last soda, throw the box away. Finish off the cereal, give it to the box. That's just what you do, you know? So I said, who did this? I yelled, I yelled into the whole house. I yelled, who did this? I didn't tell them what it was because I wanted them to wonder. You know, I wanted the whole family's attention. I wanted everybody to stop what they were doing and make their way to the pantry because I had a wrong that needed to be righted. And that's exactly what happened. Melissa came, kids came from their room and everybody gathered around. And I said, okay, listen up guys. Who was the last one to grab trail mix? Because you're in for it. And I look at Sawyer and I look at Elsa and I I remember Sawyer just the other day talking about the trail mix. So I says to the boy, I says, Sawyer, um, I can't help but remember the other day you were talking about how you've been eating so much trail mix. Was it you? And he said, no, it wasn't me. When I took the trail mix, 
there was still one more pack in the box. And I looked at him and I think, this kid's telling the truth. And I swing my gaze over at Elsa. Now, if you know Elsa, you'll know she's bright and she can be deceptive if she wants. So I have to have a very critical eye when I'm evaluating her truth telling. So I says to the girl, I says, so what, what was it else? You're just in a hurry? Don't care about other people, huh? What is it? What was your reason? Why'd you do it? And she said, no. And she looked me dead in the eye. And she said, I swear I didn't do it. When I took a pack, there was still one pack left in the box. And I said, aha. So you both say there was one pack left in the box, but somehow magically there's no packs left in the box. And I reached my hand up and I tilted the box down and Elsa, who's quite tall now, could see in and she said, um, dad. And she grabbed up there and she pulled back a trail mix out of the box. <gasps> and I said immediately, oh, sorry, carry on. No, actually I said, I'm really sorry. I owe you both a big apology. Um, yeah, sorry about that. And I took the trail mix and I put it in Amelia's lunch. I do things like that all the time where I feel like I'm on some kind of a righteous anger quest. And almost every time it ends in embarrassment or at the very least shame. Like it, it never feels good to make your problem everybody's problem. Once you're not mad anymore, that feeling where everyone's just kind of looking at you, like they get it because everybody does it, but it's still, they're looking at you like, come on, dude, you're better than this. And I think that we all are. I think that we all are. We should at least try to be. It was embarrassing. Thank God they kind of seemed like they laughed it off, but it still felt pretty silly of me. Anyway, it was just a good reminder to do my research before I start throwing around accusations, I guess. If you need to contact Ramble by the River, you can do that by getting us on social media, on Facebook and Instagram at Ramble by the River on Twitter at Ramble River Pod. And if you want to reach out for business inquiries, guest suggestions, that kind of thing, it is the email listed in the show notes. All of this can be found not only in the show notes, but also at ramblebytheriver.com. If you find value in the show today and you want to help out, you feel like getting involved, becoming part of the Ram fam, there are so many ways you can do that. The easiest way is to go over to the podcast player you're using, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Audible, whatever you got, and leave me a five-star review. Every single one of those makes a huge difference to the algorithm, and it helps to spread the podcast around. I would really appreciate it. And if you leave an actual like written review, that's even better. They, they send me those. They feel great. I love them. And I really appreciate them when you guys do that. It, it, it helps out a lot. So thank you to the people who have already been leaving reviews and ratings. It's really appreciated. If you want to take it to the next level and help out the show financially, help us keep the lights on, you know how that goes, you can leave us a donation through PayPal on ramblebytheriver.com. There's a link at the top of the page where it just says support. Click that and follow the instructions. And finally, if you really want to go all out, you can become a subscriber to the exclusive content through patreon.com slash ramblebytheriver. And through that portal, you'll be given access to bonus episodes and exclusive behind-the-scenes stuff. 
early releases, all that kind of stuff. It's a really great program. It also creates a nice little sense of community. You can reach out to me. I can message you. It's, it's cool. It's a really nice service. So I look forward to seeing you guys there. And to my existing Patreon subscribers, thank you guys so much. The contributions from you are making a world of difference in me being able to produce this show and plan for the future. So I really appreciate it. And I couldn't do it without you guys. So thank you. Just as a heads up, although my guest today is a doctor, this show is made for entertainment purposes and should not be taken as medical advice. If you want his medical advice, you're going to have to pay him for it. So this is just for entertainment. Take it as entertainment and enjoy. I don't know about you, but I love to sleep and I love to breathe. Two things that I find myself doing almost every day. And I think most of us do. But how often do we actually think about how we breathe or how we sleep? There are many ways to do both. So we go through a lot of that in this podcast today. And Dr. Shirazi is an expert. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. David Shirazi. I can really use a change of scenery. Yeah. Everybody's smoking all the greenery. Yeah. Close the matches, they were handed down to me. But I'm still fly. I'm still fly. I know. I'm still fly. I'm still fly. Let's go. It could all be worse. I could be a hater like you. Can you hear me? Good morning. Good morning. Hi, how are you? I'm well. How are you? Doing great. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's very sweet of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So first of all, thank you so much for being a guest on Ramble by the River. It's mm-hmm. great to have you here. And I'm excited about this one. I've been looking forward to it for a long time because it seems like you have the perfect background and expertise for a guy like me because I constantly thinking about the issues of sleep, breathing, and TMJ. I, oh, I okay. You know, I deal with all, all three of those things on a regular basis. <laughs> and yeah, do you have any questions for me before we get going? No, all I was going to share was, um, it, you know, in my experience, when you like, like you, when you said you have like your own personal questions and queries and all that, when, when you ask like a specific question, like as it pertains to you, uh, by the way, if I don't know the answer, I can easily say, I don't know. I don't have any problem saying I'm ignorant in that subject. But uh, if I do know, it allows me to kind of explain how things are and maybe kind of project maybe how 
you or someone else might be in that situation. And that seems to be the most organic kind of podcast and, and the most engaging and the one the audience and the host likes the most. Perfect. And it's just free flowing. So I just kind of say what's on my mind and I just kind of get on with it. I love that. Also, like this isn't a medical show or anything specific. It's very free form. So if mm-hmm. you if you just get bored of talking about this stuff you always talk about and you feel like venturing <laughs> off into something weird, okay. do it. Definitely okay. do it. And I'll follow <laughs> you right in. Okay, cool. All right. So mm-hmm. in two, year 2000, you graduated from Howard University College of Dentistry. Yeah. And in 2006, you graduated from... Samra University with a master's degree in oriental medicine. That's yeah. interesting. I want to talk about that for sure. Sure. In 2007, you received a prestigious fellowship award from the American Academy of Craniofacial Pain. And you're an expert in TMD, which what is TMD? TMD is just TM temporomandibular joint disorders, right? You know, when people say, oh, I have TMJ. Mm-hmm. So that's like saying, oh, I have legs, right? So TMJ is just a body part. Yeah. And a TMJ disorder has a very wide spectrum mm-hmm. oh, of issues. We're off to a great start. That's a huge pet peeve of mine. People are like, <laughs> oh, my TMJ, I have TMJ. I was like, yeah, we all do. I actually have two of them. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, you are an expert in facial pain, craniomandibular orthopedics, and sleep disorders. That is all stuff that's very interesting. Particularly um, sleep disordered breathing, but yes, sleep disorders. Mm-hmm. Cool. Sleep disordered breathing. Yeah. And, and probably breathing in general, right? You can handle the, uh, the waking mm-hmm. breathing as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, you're dual certified as a dentist and also an RPSGT, which is a registered polysomnographic technologist. I was. I was for five years. Um, now, you know, I had three licenses and it was getting a bit much because you have to get continuing ed for every license every two years. So it just became a bit much. So I didn't renew my sleep technology license. I still opened up my own sleep lab, but I didn't um, I didn't do that. So I, I was a sleep technologist for five years. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So sleep technologist is, so would you have been like working at a clinic doing sleep studies? What does a sleep technologist do? That's exactly right. So a sleep technologist conducts the sleep studies, the in-lab polysomnogram studies. um, And we even have a daytime one called an MSLT. Um, But, but the vast majority of the time it's in, uh, it's in a sleep lab at night. Something I've always wondered about sleep labs. Um, So the is there any issue with like i don't know if you would call it the observer effect but just the fact that the people are sleeping in a totally novel environment and mm-hmm. does that create any kind of uh confounding variables do you have to get them a, yeah. like, used to it first or anything so i mean we always ask our patients to come an hour before bedtime just to get acclimated but you are correct if there actually, there actually is a medical term for that in sleep, it's called the first night effect, mm. where it takes a little while to acclimate into your, uh, you know, bedtime surroundings, and and people, it's true, they become a little bit vigilant, um, like that. Sleep um, with one eye open, 
figuratively. They can be. So what I tell my patients, because I offer both in-home and in-lab testing. And to be honest, my in-lab testing is predominantly research. Um, uh, There's a great number of good sleep labs around me and they all take insurance. I don't. And so my center is focused on doing research. So, you know, the average person is not coming to do an in-lab for me. The labs around me not only don't do research, but they a lot, almost, I think 100% of them don't do children. And our facilities are, are set up for children. Oh, interesting. Which is a very niche uh, subject. But what, when, I, when people ask, should I do an in-home or an in-lab? The first thing we want to know is, well, we're looking at sleep apnea, right? Snoring, that's your concern. They say, yes. If that's what they say, then I'll say, okay, when you go away on vacation and you're sleeping in a hotel for the first day, does it take you a day or two to get used to the bedroom and the bed and the linens and the pillows and all that? Or are you just so tired you can put your head on that pillow and you're out, right? Mm -hmm. And patients that say, oh my God, I can sleep you know, standing up and it doesn't matter where I sleep. Those patients will do best in a lab setting because in a lab setting, we'll have over 20 streams of data coming in from the heart, the breathing, brain waves, muscle activity, airflow. Whereas in a home sleep study, we'll only have six. What are the six? The, the six are your chest going in and out, your blood oxygen, your airflow, because we'll have a nasal cannula, will essentially measure a thermistor and your sleep stages. Okay. And they do the sleep stages through like a, what a, a one of those, what do they call them? The little mesh things they wear over the, like a skull cap that has little uh, magnetic no, no, readers no. or? No, no, believe it or not. So it depends which technology you're using. Like um, there's one brilliant technology called the Endopact. The name of their device is called WatchPat. And they have a device that's so sensitive, it can detect just on your peripheral artery tone, what stage of sleep you're in. Wow. Because your sympathetic tone changes. Mm-hmm. It's a brilliant, it, it was originally invented to see if someone has elastic blood vessels. What they would do is they would cut off the blood supply. Like, you know, you're taking your blood pressure. They would really increase the cuff to cut off the blood supply to, you know, the brachial artery. And then they would suddenly let go all at once. And what should happen is let's say the diameter, your normal diameter lumen is that big. It should immediately double and then go back to normal. Mm -hmm. Right. If on the other hand, it just opens up like 25% instead of a hundred percent, then that could indicate that you have atherosclerosis and hardening of your arteries, which is very indicative of a heart problem that, you know, could lead to a myriad of negative consequences. So um, they, 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 they realized that they could also monitor people's sleep if they uh, measure the pulse ox and, and some other parameters. So it, it depends on the device is the, is a quick answer. There's another one that has a forehead strap, right? And then the nasal cannula comes down from that. So it just depends on the technology. Cool. That's interesting. So uh, you did a mini residency at China Beijing International Acupuncture Training Center, uh, mm-hmm. which is the only place endorsed to teach acupuncture by 
the World Health Organization. That sounds like a pretty a legitimate. Um, well, it's the, for international, like for, <laughs> for international mm-hmm. training. So um, when I, you know, the school that I went to was the first accredited acupuncture school in the United States. And of course, oh. they're accredited to teach, you know, Chinese medicine. Um, the, the, the Beijing Center is for international training. So people can come for a few weeks, years, whatever they want to do. And it'll be recognized by the World Health Organization as a legitimate degree. I had a, I met someone randomly who was from Iran and he was a psychiatrist and he had been doing acupuncture on his patients for 30 years. And I said, oh, so you're doing some continuing ed? And he goes, no, no, no. The, the government is forcing me to come. And I said, what do you mean the government is forcing you to come? <laughs> and he said, well, um, uh, they asked me, you know, how am I trained to do acupuncture? And I said, I've studied it. I've, I've learned it. I've done it. I've been practicing for 30 years. They go, that's not good enough. You need to have like proper credentialing. So, you know, he had to come to a place like Beijing to get trained, to get certified so that he could continue uh-huh. <laughs> to do acupuncture for psychology. Wow. So acupuncture is old. It's a, it's a very old system of treatment. Uh, it, so would this just mean that this uh, China Beijing International Acupuncture Training Center is where all the ancient knowledge is kind of coalesced and that way they can keep it in kind of a systematic training well, method or is, is it a system? So, <laughs> so I'm going to tell you that I, when I did my residency there, that was the naivety that I came in with. So as you all know, the communist government took over like about a hundred years ago. And, you know, prior to that, Chinese medicine was meshed with Taoism, right? And the Chinese government is very much anti-religion, right? So they considered Taoism, even though Taoism is a philosophy, they considered Taoism a religion. So they deleted portions of, in terms of training, and they massacred a number of physicians um, who, you know, stubbornly would do what we call five elements and aspects that are, you know, considered Taoist. And, um, and so there's a lot lost. And then is that kind of more of the spiritual aspect of it? You could say that. Dealing with I mean, the they, chi? Yeah. Well, chi is not considered spiritual. Chi is considered some um, energetic form that's not um, solid, right? Like blood could be considered uh, something you can tangentially feel, but chi is much harder to feel. Is it measurable? Chi, yeah. Yeah. In fact, in, the, um, in Boston, I want to say a long time ago, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, uh, Dr. Shirazi, it, yeah. it, is there a phone on the table or something? I keep hearing yeah, a buzz. Yeah, something vibrant. Yeah. That if you want to just set that off the table you or something, that would you be awesome. It, I'll just go into airplane mode. I apologize. No problem. So in Boston, about 30, 40 years ago, a uh, physician had observed. So you know how a lizard... Um, when it loses its tail, right? Uh, the tail is mostly fat and nutrients, but if it feels like it's going to be attacked, it'll discard a tail and it gets to scamper off and live. So, and then they grow the tail back if they're unmolested and they have enough food. So this physician put lizard that just had its tail taken off on a plate that could measure electrical conductance. And on the plate, he saw an outline of the lizard's tail. 
what? Right. An energetic outline of the lizard's tail. Right. So, for example, um, in Chinese medicine, we say that uh, blood follows chi. Right. And you, we wonder where that happens. Well, we know embryologically that our blood vessels and nerves grow together. Right. Mm -hmm. They grow in tracks. Right. So arteries, veins and nerves grow in tracks, like in your arms, your legs, your abdomen. And when we superimpose these tracks on the meridians in Chinese medicine, it just coincidentally just happens to be on the same exact track. So, you know, we could postulate, I don't know if we could ever test for that, but we could postulate that it's these energetic meridians that carry uh, the chi and then, then carry the direction for blood vessels and nerves to be built on. Okay. Yeah. That makes total sense. So like, mm -hmm. I remember in biology learning about the early development of the, like the human early development. So you, you mm -hmm. get your embryo and it turns into your neural tube. And then from right. there, from there, like the brain stem is forming and the, and the lower parts of the brain are all forming. And these, uh, uh, it's been a long time, but I'm going to try to pull out the terminology. Uh, these plur pluripotent stem ah, cells yes, good are, for you. <laughs> are, are created and produced, and then they just go to where they need to go. And they just start traveling, and it, it just travels to where it needs to go and somehow knows. Would that be a similar philosophy, like that maybe th these cells are following these lines of chi? To, to otherwise, how would they know that this stem cell, which could be anything, needs to go and be a bone cell in the skull. And this one needs to go be a tendon in the ankle. And like, you know what I mean? Uh, would yeah, that be some kind of a guidance system? It, I mean, it could be, we don't know. Um, we do know that stem cells, um, if you put stem cells adjacent to a tissue, right? If you put it in adjacent to heart tissue, uh, skin tissue, bone tissue, it, well, I don't know about bone tissue, to be honest. Um, brain I tissue bone tissue too but if you put it adjacent to it it will grow into that mm -hmm. right based on its uh, chemical uh environment that's what we think the question is always you know chicken or the egg right yeah we we know the answer is egg by the way <laughs> how do you it's how a, do you explain that how do we know it's chicken or the egg well how yeah how, how could you really ever explain that that's for sure the egg so the egg is what carries the new genetic material. But where did it come from? Right. So just from the uh, cell division, just from the, the, the genes that came together and how they decided to express, and then the environment that the genes were in will cause it to, you know, the phenotypic expression will be the phenotypic expression based on those factors. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I get that, I think. Yeah. And so, well, well, so in other words, um, you've got the, the rooster and then you got the chicken um, that fertilized the egg, but then you have the environment that the egg came in and which could, you know, guide the way that it, it manifests. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, phen the phenotypic expression is. The interplay of nature and nurture. Yeah. Interesting. And that's the big thing. It's like, you know, um, when we got around to, uh, sequencing the the entire human genome we were you know thinking great you know we're going to be able to trigger these genes on and off and extend life and 
and pharmaceutical businesses are going to go, you know, gangbusters. But we found out that basically four proteins will switch on and off genes. Mm -hmm. And those proteins could be had from either diet, breathing exercises, and meditation, like your brain waves. Right? Okay. So it was, it's, a, it's a very interesting discovery that turned, I, I wonder how they must have felt because they must have felt like, oh my God, I'm going to be a trillionaire. I'm going to sell all these products. I oh, know, no, there's nothing to sell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not quite as simple as we thought, huh? Yeah, because you can't patent food. Uh-huh. Well, okay, so the Genome Project was huge and it, it mm-hmm. brought in people from all over the world. Did we already know about epigenetics at the time? Did we know what we junk DNA was and that it wasn't just hanging out for no reason? I don't know if we knew back then about junk. It, it depends who you asked, right? Mm-hmm. So if you asked in like a 70-year-old geneticist, they tell you, yeah, junk DNA doesn't do anything, right? Yeah. And if you ask a 30-year-old geneticist, they're like, well, we don't know, mm-hmm. you know? So it, dep- it kind of depends on, on, on who you ask. Yeah. Okay, cool. Is, and I like, again, I'm very... Uh, basic in my understanding of genetics, but mm-hmm. is it that junk DNA is unexpressed genetic code that essentially like the whatever environment, uh, whatever the environment called for from the organism in order to, you know, stimulate development in a certain direction and a, a subsequent phenotypic expression, everything else that gets left behind is that the junk DNA? Basically, junk DNA is we don't know what it does yet. That's, that's the basic blanket expression. Cause it's it, not we, doing anything. Well, we, that's the thing. When we, we look at it, we don't know that it's doing anything or not. You know, it could be that our measurement techniques are not looking at the right thing, that they're not sensitive enough. We don't know what we do know in nature and the study of evolution is that evolution doesn't make unnecessary things right? We haven't evolved to have that uh, for no good reason. There has to be a good reason. And, you know, we haven't really even evolved to be fully human, you know, generally speaking, because when we look at more Aboriginal societies and ones that deal with psychedelics, they are more in touch with deeper and broader spectrums of their brain than mm-hmm. the average person, especially in the West. Forget You're into me. psychedelics too? I didn't even see that on your bio. Well, there's nothing to, to be into. It's just, ooh, what does ooh, the literature- ooh, I disagree. We got well, lots no, to get I mean, into. It's like, no, I'm into it. It's like, but I, I, I'm a scientist. Yeah. You know, I'm a clinical researcher. So I look at it and it's so inspiring. It's so inspiring. And, and I am one of those people that just doesn't believe that- you know, if someone has depression and anxiety, that they're born with a deficiency of a pharmaceutical drug. Yeah, right? I agree. You, you know, that to me, it's in it's most there cases, for, in most cases, it's, it's there for uh, an emergency need or what we call a palliative need until the issue resolves or until we find out the cause of the issue so we can address it properly. Right. Someone actually, I just, I, I don't know, I don't want to know if, if I'm going to go too uh, on fringe for you by saying this, but someone, an, another acupuncturist was having a Facebook discussion that really changed me. And, and just to surmise, the hallmark of a white supremacist, their hallmark 
is that they feel they're the best at everything, right? They feel like they're as, as if the white race is a race. It's not, there's only a human race. There is no, you know, you know, we got a calico cat and we got a black cat. Just relax, dude. You're, you're still a cat. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And they have these irrational beliefs that other uh, races or other ethnicities, I should say, are inferior for some, you know. It's illogical. Have they ever seen the NBA? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. So Western medicine really, you know, is in alignment with that right? They think that their medicine is the only medicine and that alternatives, and this is, of course, you know, there are exceptions, but generally speaking, they feel that alternatives like Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, psychedelic medicine, even chiropractic medicine, which is Western. Yeah, that even, gets a lot, of, a lot of shit from doctors about yeah, not and being homeopathic real. medicine, which is there German. You again, yeah. You, you know, they, you know, but they have this, this belief that theirs is the best and there's no other way around it. You're not, I mean, the, you know, with the mandates that you see that people are trying to push right now, that that is like a political way of saying there's only one way to treat something. Yeah. And it doesn't make, well, I mean, there's a good chance that Western medicine is the best. But that doesn't mean it's the only one that works. And it doesn't mean it's well, a full encompassing it, system. It, it depends what you mean by the best. So yeah, like, that too. So for example, if you were in a car accident, you got a gunshot or knife wound. Yes, they're the people you want to go to for emergency medicine. They are they are the best at emergency medicine. I can I can say that with ease and 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 uh, certainty. But they're certainly not the best at treating diabetes. They're certainly not the best at treating hypertension. You know, the, not the, preventative the, care is not their thing. The preventative care is not their thing. It well, they say it is, but it doesn't seem to be shown. No, it, no, like, it, it clearly isn't. But the on top of preventative care not being, you know, in their wheelhouse, actual care is not in their wheelhouse, right? For example, my field, sleep apnea. We know sleep apnea can cause hypertension and type 2 diabetes. We know it can. And the reason we know it can is we take people that have diabetes, type 2, and uh, sleep apnea, resolve it, the, the sleep apnea, with either CPAP or oral appliance therapy, and their type 2 diabetes either goes away or is reduced, right? Wow. Substantially. So, Thousands of articles like this, both for CPAP and for oral appliances. Same thing for hypertension, right? Now, does that mean that sleep apnea causes all of type 2 diabetes and hypertension? Of course not. But what physician would sit there and they go, oh, wow, your blood sugar is very high. You're hitting 180. Oh, my God, this is very dangerous. At what point do they say, how are you sleeping? Maybe we should do a sleep study. Not a lot. No, it's few and far between. And and I have family members that, you know, went to really good, prestigious medical schools. And I asked them, how many hours of training in sleep did you get in medical school? And they just show me a big fat zero. So something that we do eight hours out of every day, that is where we get almost 100% of our growth hormone. 
and almost 100% of our mental emotional processing, they have zero training. in. Yeah, that doesn't seem very practical. It's not. So are you a fan of a more holistic approach to, to medical science and well, health? Whenever possible, whenever possible. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Cause you don't have a choice on the experiential level. It's all holistic because that's how we experience the world. Agreed. You might as well think about your health that way. You don't really have a choice. That's how it functions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let, before we get too far off, um, I want to get really quick back to acupuncture. Mm, so okay. uh, you mentioned meridians. That was yeah. one term that mm -hmm. I would like to have you clarify. And we talked about chi and energy flow. And I know it's it's kind of mixing cultural references, but chakras have always been something that interested me a lot as like mm -hmm. these energy centers in the body. And I think chakra comes from the Sanskrit meaning spinning wheel or wheel of light or something, something like that. Could you talk a little bit about the flow of energy in the body and how acupuncture affects that? So we have essentially an electrical system that takes what we call our life force, our chi, up and down these meridians, and it's mirrored. Your right side is mirrored to your left. And we have ones that run right down the middle. And we, the majority of them have an organ, quote unquote, associated with them. Uh, some of the organs, when they say the organ, they mean the actual organ. And some of them, they mean the metaphorical organ. Like the heart. Like the heart, for example, right? So the heart would be, yeah, the heart, but it would also be your shen, which is what we call your emotions and your spirit, right? So for example, but it could also be your fears, right? Okay. okay. So anyway, so you're saying some of these areas are tied in with organs and some are thought of like the physical organ, like your liver, and others are thought of more in a figurative sense, like the heart. That's correct. Yeah. So, um, and, and in Chinese medicine, we say these meridians are just under the skin and then they'll dive into that organ and then come back out. Okay. And our, and our, like I said, our energy flows. So in Chinese medicine, we say that there is either an excess or a deficiency. So we'll often, um, if someone has pain in an area, especially a sharp stabbing pain, we'll do acupuncture to unblock the chi, which could also be blocking the blood, as it turns out, in the sharp stabbing pain. But um, and how and does that yeah. work? How does it unlock it? Well, that's that's the miracle thing that we that we can't fully explain. And this is what they when we ask those questions in acupuncture school, they would say, you know, you may not know how a computer works with its circuit boards, motherboards, hard drives, and etc. In detail but you know what to do to the computer to make it run. Mm -hmm. right? So there are some things we don't know. Like, so for example, there was a MRI study done in Korea where they, they did a functional MRI scan um, and they purposefully did an eye point that's on the pinky toe. And I believe it was something like in five out of six subjects, they could see the eye centers of the brain light up on the functional MRI. The eye centers so, by poking and the it's pinky instantaneous. Toe? So the yeah. So they had the, you know, the functional MRIs on the brain. Mm -hmm. We're looking at the brain, brain looks normal. And then you go and stimulate the eye point on the pinky toe. And and then you go and you know watch the functional MRI and you'll see activity energetic glucose activity in the, the centers of the eye in the brain. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. So we see it happening objectively, right? The subjective part, obviously, we see that. It, it becomes more ethereal when we try to explain it. You know, you could even do it with the magnets on, you know, on top of an acupuncture point without even breaking the skin. Wow. And that's actually something that the different schools of thought vary on. So when I did a hospital residency in China and Korea, they very much believe in strong needling. In China, if you don't needle vigorously in order to give the patient a zinger, they think you don't care. So they, they want you poking them hard. They want, I mean, okay, so I don't know if you guys have this, but all over here in California, we've got um, these massage places. Mm-hmm. And usually the, the people are, uh, you know, usually straight off the boat from China. They often don't speak English. And when they try to massage you, they're, it's like they're trying to massage your bones. They're pressing so hard. I it's think a, I know the kind of place you're talking about. You go in, you get a bowl of noodles and a hand job. <laughs> no, no, not that. Not that kind of place. Okay, different kind of it's place. Just... My bad. My bad. <laughs> no. So these kind of places are an actual massage therapist will own it. And I don't know if these people are actually licensed, but then they'll come and they'll like massage your shoulders, massage your feet or whatever. Mm-hmm. And when they do it, they're, 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 they're just trying to kill you. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're just squeezing so hard. Right. And that is a cultural thing. Whereas if, if you're not putting in the effort, if I can't feel that you're putting in the effort, you don't even deserve this money because you're not working for it. Do, do you know what I mean? I absolutely agree with that strategy. And I, I need to find <laughs> one of these masseurs. <laughs> you do agree with it. I don't agree with it. I like so, a little pain with my massage. Well, I do too, but I like it like to be clinical. I like it to oh, be yeah. precise. You know, these people are not precise. It's like they might as well just take a sledgehammer to put a nail in a in a board. Oh, they're just trying to rile up the nervous system. They're they're just they're just mashing you. They're just got squeezing it. the hell out of you. So, like for example, if you've got a trigger point, you got a knot in your shoulder. I love it when a masseuse digs their elbow. And just digs it in there and, and just smashes that. I love it, right? I go get, I get it. It's great. I, I have a high tolerance. I love it. Uh, these people are not doing that. They're doing karate chops and and these manhandling maneuvers, which makes it more painful and make you tense up more. Right? Yeah, that's what I was gonna say because you get that reaction. It, exactly. They have to work into it and let the muscle relax. If you just go in hard right away, you, the muscle gets worse. Yeah. So, like I said, it's a cultural thing in China. And, and they reuse their needles in China. So they, they it's take efficient. these. <laughs> it's efficient, but it's painful. So after they use the needle, then they run it through an autoclave mm-hmm. and then they use it again. Hmm. And it's like sticking a chopstick through someone's skin. And they don't use a tube. Like here in the States, oh. we put a needle in a tube and the tube is just a little bit shorter than the needle and we tap the top of the needle so that it hit, so that our finger hits the tube and it instantly you know pops inside the acupuncture point under the skin they just they it's like throwing darts oh my god right with with them now in korea they also like pain but they're they're a bit more precise so they want the tubes you know they they want disposable needles right mm-hmm. but in japan they have, I use only Japanese needles. They cut their needles with a laser. 
They dip them in silicone so it glides easy. And the techniques that are often done in Japan, you're just putting the needle just under the skin. Okay, which is where the meridians are supposedly laying, right? Well, what they found out was they did they did research in, in Japan and they found was whether because what we find on the skin is, you know, we have resistance in our skin. Right. But right where the acupuncture meridians are and especially where the points are, the resistance just drops off. Mm-hmm. Right. So what they found was they don't need to go an inch deep just to get to the acupuncture point. They can just superficially go under the skin and and get the same effect as long as they're on the meridians. Gotcha. You follow? Mm-hmm. So it you know there, there's there's a there's some cultural uh, norms in that, but but they get the similar response. Wow. So it, I think a lot of people, especially in my audience, are completely inexperienced when it comes to acupuncture, but interested. Mm. I myself have always kind of been interested in it and I've always wanted to try it, but I I have not done so mostly because the options for practitioners where I'm from is very, very slim pickings. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's hard to find practitioners period. And then on top of that, I'm like, well, I mean, if I, you know, if I have 10 barbers to choose from, maybe two of those barbers are going to be worth a damn. The rest of them, I'm going to leave dissatisfied. And if it's involving needles being plunged into my skin, I don't want that kind of a success rate. You know what I mean? So what are the things that you should look for when choosing a practitioner for acupuncture? So for me, it's sort of like choosing a regular doctor. So when we came out of acupuncture school, they kind of showed us a little bit of everything. And they showed us philosophy and they showed us herbology. And it was a very intense program. And I want to say, the acupuncture board exam is way harder than the dental board exam. Wow, really? Way harder. When I got my fellowship and my diplomates at the Academy of Craniofacial Pain, they're slapping my back and congratulating me on doing such a great, you know, because it was a hard test. Mm -hmm. Because after you do the written test, if you pass it, then you have to do a three-hour defending test where you have to show three cases that you've completed and how you did it. And then they quiz you of why did you do this? And why didn't you do that? Wow. Right. Cause they want to know, are you smart enough? Do you know what you're doing? You come out, you, you come out and you're kind of trained in everything. Now you still have to do continuing ed, not just legally, but for your own knowledge, but everyone has a predilection. Like I had classmates that were passionate about infertility even my mentor is passionate about helping people with infertility. I had people that loved children. I had people that specifically loved pregnant women. I had people that loved um, geriatrics and, and, you know, whatever specialty you can come up with. So for me, I loved orthopedics and neurology. That was my, that was my passion. And it, it, it overlapped with um, what I'm doing in clinical practice as a dentist. Mm -hmm. So So it, Got some synergy. Yeah. So for example, like, you know, I I usually don't treat outside the head issues, but because I have so much experience and training in orthopedics and neurology, if someone had knee pain as an acupuncturist, I know how to treat that. Right. But I would be worse than useless um, with someone that had, you know, 
dysmenorrhea that was caused by PCOS that extended their periods and they needed, like, I, I don't know how to approach that patient. Mm-hmm. You know, so let's say you call up an acupuncturist and they say, so what's your focus? What, what do you like to do? And let's say they say, I do everything. It's like, okay. So you're saying you're basically a family practice kind of person. Yes. Okay. So that means if you want to go in there with um, immune boosting therapies, minor aches and pains, things like that. Right. And, you know, just sort of family practitioner sort of things like you would a Western doctor that are not severe. But then, you know, if they say my focus is women, I, I, I treat women's issues. Well, great. I have women's issues. Let me come and see you. Right. So it, it's, it's sort of like that. And usually acupuncturists are very accessible. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, as, you know, especially if they've been Western trained. And what I mean by that, I didn't, you know, what I mean by that is uh, sometimes um, when they're from China or, uh, you know, other nations that are, they're still very much set in their own ways. Communication is not their like forte. Uh-huh. Right. So sometimes asking them, Hey, um, what are you, what are you good at? What do you like to treat? What do, the, you know, they're confused by this. So I guess it seems like you're saying the, the trick really is just to communicate, find somebody who Absolutely. you can communicate with and who's Absolutely. willing to communicate with you. Absolutely. Right. And then That's just exactly ask the right questions. Saying. Absolutely right. Yeah. And they are, like I said, generally speaking, they're more accessible. So sometimes you'll get a secretary, but sometimes you'll get the actual acupuncturist when you call Uh and you'll say, okay, so I have this issue. Do you have success treating this issue? Um, And, and, you know, this is the thing, like I've seen this among acupuncturists outside of myself. I've seen this among acupuncturists and chiropractors. You'll have an issue and you'll say, can you treat this? It's like, well, I've treated it before. And you treat it. And after like three visits, they should be able to tell you, yeah, you're getting better. This is good. Let's keep it up. Mm-hmm. Or you know what? My, it's not working. I, I, you got to find someone else. I'm not, I'm not good enough for you. I'm not a good fit for you. Right? That's been my personal experience with acupuncturists and chiropractors is that they're honest enough and humble enough to say, you know, it's not working. Yeah. That's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't want somebody who's just going to keep you coming back week after week for 10 years, not doing anything. Yeah, exactly. And and hopefully someone has enough sense to, you know, give up on it yeah. <laughs> if it's not working. Yeah. But yeah, it depends. Like, I'll tell you what, I have a friend of mine, a very dear friend of mine who's a chiropractor and he was first an engineer and then he decided to be a chiropractor and he was practicing. He was doing fine. And he developed lower back problems, presumably from leaning over his patients, but he developed a lower back problem. And he went to 25 different chiropractors Wow! with, n- with no resolution. That must've taken a long time. It did. And he was, he was walking with a cane and he was completely disenfranchised with his whole profession. He was about to quit chiropractic and go back and become an electrical engineer. And he was working with this one guy, his name is David Denton, who recently passed away. And he was working on him and he was doing these very gentle, subtle adjustments. And, you know, it's not that it wasn't working, but it was like, he was so skeptical after the 25 failures. 
and he act, he he was dating he was courting his now wife and he was talking about that and she would say you know um uh, maybe you should just give it a try. You know, you never know. Maybe 26 is the charm, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And, and he didn't want to seem, um, you know, disagreeable. So he's like, okay, I'll give this guy a try. So he did. And he was doing these very little, no, no cracking or anything. He was just doing these really subtle adjustments, oftentimes on his head and inside his mouth. And he started not needing a cane and he started to be upright and, before he knew it, his back problem was gone. Wow. So it's not always the big, uh, huge adjustments. The little ones sometimes is what it takes. That's that's what I like to see. Do you and think that the uh, ability... Oh, so I know it's it's been doc- well-documented that the attitude of the patient makes a huge deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes a, it has a huge effect on the uh, impact of treatments of, of every kind, essentially. How yeah. much of that impact do you think is is something you can actually calculate? Like if going into it, uh, especially with something like acupuncture, where there's quite a bit of uh, misinformation out there and doubt. Do you think that the the placebo and nocebo effect play a role? Yeah, there is no escaping the placebo nocebo effect. It it applies to surgeries. It applies to everything. There there is no escaping it. I think we need to start reframing how we view what that even is. It's it's people still think of it as like some kind of a trick you play on yourself, but it's, it's really just the the activation of your body's own healing systems. It's like the first step. It it can be, it just shows the power of belief and the power of the mind. You know, there is this whole branch of medicine called new German medicine. Have you ever heard of it? No, you, you particularly the questions and the knowledge that you have, are so perfect, you would just be in love with new German medicine. I will check Um, it out right after this podcast. So it's very complex. It's, um, It's an explanation of essentially which PTSD can cause which disease. Ooh, I love it already. Right? So you know how, you know, Western medicine, we say all problems are genetics or stress. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, I've always hated that. I, I confronted my teachers about that in, de- in dental school. I just I called them out on their bullshit. You know, it's just total bullshit um, because everything is genetics. OK, like everyone has genes. But as we talked about earlier, your epigenetics, you know, dictates your expression. Right. Mm-hmm. And stress like stress is too vague. You got to be a little bit more specific. So what happened with the new German medicine, I want to say 40, 50 years ago, there was a psychiatrist, Dr. Hammer, and his son uh, was tragically killed um, and it, it was tragically shot and it took him a month to die. It was a horrible, oh my God. horrible thing. He was mistaken for someone else, I think, something like that. So highly traumatic event. Highly traumatic event after his son passed. He developed testicular cancer and his wife developed breast and uh, um, ovarian cancer. But he asked his physicians that diagnosed it. He said, listen, I have zero family history in cancer. I am in perfect health. Why did I get testicular cancer after my son died? And they said, we don't know. But if you don't treat it, there's an 80% chance of death in a year, right? So 
anecdotally, well, so testicular and prostate cancer can metastasize to the brain. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he did a brain CT. There was no cancer and he's, there was an artifact in, in the MR, in the brain CT. So he asked a radiologist, he goes, what is that? He goes, it's an artifact. He goes, is it an artifact of my brain or of the machine? He goes, your brain. He goes, well, then what is it? He goes, we don't know. We see it randomly all the time. Okay. So then he asked his testicular and ovarian cancer patients, right before your diagnosis, did you have a sudden loss? And sure enough, they all had a sudden loss. And then he ordered a brain CT for all of them. And lo and behold, they had the artifact in the exact same part of the brain as he did. Now, the artifacts, one was radiolucent and one was radiopaque, but the location was in the exact same part of the, of the brain. His material is very left brain, non-intuitive, very, like, it's Germanic, his material. And he, and he takes it from the embryolog embryological layers all the way to the disease, right? Uh -huh. So, like, just to paraphrase, he concluded that the brain has a mechanism whereby there's unmanageable stress, right? Where you're kind of like in a state of shock, unmanageable stress, yeah? And in this unmanageable stress state, a couple of things can happen. One, you could you know, not be paying attention and get run over by a car or truck or something. Or you could have a form of adrenal exhaustion that could cause death. So the brain makes an executive decision because the brain is always thinking about survival and survival in the moment. So the brain makes an executive decision to try to change the stress, to reduce the stress. So again, this is an elementary paraphrase. But in his case, it would be, okay, well, this guy is stressed out about the loss of his son. How can we get him more sun? Oh, we can make more sperm. Oh my God. Well, how do we make more sperm? Well, we got to make more testicular tissue. Okay, let's make more testicular tissue then. Holy which shit. Is what, which is what cancer is. It's, it's a redundancy in tissue. So um, predominantly. So, uh, so that's with him such an integration of psychology and biology. That's because he was a psychiatrist, right? And he was a smart man. And he was in uh, Germany and, you know, Freudian uh, psychotherapy came from Austria. So it's, it's in the schools. Yeah. It's in, it's so in he, the water. It's everywhere. Even yeah. here in this, in this country, it's, I mean, it's in yeah. our cultural lexicon, a lot of Freudian concepts. Yeah. Which, which is good, I think. So um, he went and just went deep. He decided to forego the chemo. He did IV vitamin C only, and he, you know, did, you know, way deep dives into the subconscious of the trauma of his son's death. Yeah. And lo and behold, he made a full recovery. Yeah. That's an incredible story. And then he went, oh, that's just the beginning. He, he went on to correlate 500 specific diseases to 500 specific PTSDs. Wow. Right. So it, it's, it's, and, and there was a system and the, and the irony of the system was the biology and, or the physiology is trying to resolve the conflict of the psychology. 
Yeah, that totally makes sense. It's a holistic approach. It is. It's brilliant. So the placebo, the placebo and the nocebo effect are real. And this is what I try to tell doctors. When, when, when I talk to a doctor and something like this, like the conversation you and I are having is coming up, mm-hmm. I challenge them. You know, I, They're like, well, Dave, that's a bit too woo-woo for me. I can't really go with that. And I said, well, do you accept what placebo is? He goes, yeah, placebo is real. I go, what is placebo? Placebo is the the patient is given a sugar pill and they think they might have gotten the real pill and they exhibit resolution of their symptoms that they were hoping for, Mm -hmm. right? What does that tell you as a physician, right? Because we know placebo is so real that we don't even value a study as being that concise if it doesn't have a placebo control. No, it doesn't even get any credibility whatsoever. Very little. So so we know placebo is real. So then placebo must mean that we are mentally controlling the outcome of our body to get what's called in medicine a spontaneous remission. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, like I once once took a neurologist out to dinner and he said, um, he's like, yeah, I know about acupuncture and I know about cranial sacral therapy, but I don't know how that stuff works. And I said, okay, okay. How does Tylenol work? Right. And he started laughing. He was like, yeah, most of the drugs in the PDR, we don't know the mechanism of action. We just have a hypothesis. I go, exactly. Yeah. The line, exactly. The line is very foggy when you really get down to it, try and, to find where it, it is. And I want to come back to this whole white supremacist attitude of thinking that they have the best, even though, you, you know, there's, there's giant holes in their system as well. It's not yeah. like their system is so perfect. And just to take that uh, to another level, the ancient text, the formulas for herbs and acupuncture that came after the original text and same for Ayurvedic medicine, they would be conducted in a learning way. The body can kind of lead its own healing process and the placebo and nocebo effects and how they are fundamental to how we function. Right. But, but I was also talking about the ancient formulas in Chinese medicine. The That's books. where I started getting it choppy. Okay. So the way they're written, they're, they're written as learning uh, tools and they're written the way it is in life. So, for example, it would say patient presents with these symptoms, okay? We think this is the diagnosis, and this is the herbal formula, for example, that we want to give, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, if patient comes back worse or with different new symptoms, that means the original diagnosis was wrong. It was really this, and therefore, we give the right formula, and the patient gets better. So, it's a corrective system. It's a corrective and it's, it's, it's humble, right? Nothing is perfect, right? Even doctors are humans. So we make errors, we make mistakes, it happens. So sometimes we just have to do things just for a trial to see if it works or not. It seems so, like that system would allow for more individual difference also, where you could acknowledge that like, hey, this works for some people, it might not work for you. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Rather than there is only one way. Mm-hmm. 
Um, okay. So we're about halfway through and I still have, I really haven't got through many more than just like two questions, okay, but uh, we're, we're just burning through it. Um, the time is just slipping away and I don't want to lose my chance to talk about a few of these things. Functional orthodontics. I just finished up having braces. I had braces for two years and my teeth weren't extremely crooked, but I've had jaw problems and it, I was convinced that it was messing with my hearing was it, it's not that my hearing was bad. Just like everything is so loud in my own head. Like mm -hmm. I can hear my mouth. I can hear the inside of my mouth better than I can hear you. Like when I'm mm -hmm. having a conversation with you and it just felt like there was something was wrong. So I, I went to an orthodontist, got the braces, had them for two years. They did improve my uh, ability to hear better. And like I get less pain and headaches and things are much, much better. It hasn't completely cured me of, of all my issues. I still have a lot of muscular issues in my neck. I'm always having problems with swallowing and like having pinched nerves and a lot of neck pain. And it, it ties in with like um, getting kind of real restricted movement in my shoulders. And I have issues with like at the brachial plexus getting impingements mm -hmm. and all, all kinds of stuff like that. My hands going numb and um, stuff like that. So I'm, I'm very interested in like proper functioning is it, it is my understanding that orthodontics and what's going on in your mouth and with your jaw can have a cascading effect throughout your whole kinetic chain system. Is that true? Uh, well, yeah. So my focus as a, a TMJ disorder expert is not so much focused on the teeth, right? Mm -hmm. the, we're looking more at the neurology of the jaw, the clenching of the teeth at night, the jaw position, the jaw locking, and all the things associated with that. It's true, orthodontics can help um, reduce those symptoms. Um, but I often find, this has been my experience, if you're not controlling the clenching that people do at night, the effects will be very temporary. Yeah, I definitely feel that. Mm -hmm. I use a, I have a retainer now, so I haven't been using the night guard, but I was using a night guard for a while and it was helpful for that bruxism. Um, I read a book by James Nestor called Breath. Have you read it? I'm aware of the book. I have not read it yet. I would love to hear your opinion on it because it's, it presents some ideas that I had not really put much thought into before about breath and, and how it, it really is like the gas pedal and the brake for your nervous system. And, but yeah. he, in particular, he talked about this thing called a pallet spreader that he, as an adult, he had installed on the roof of his mouth and it had a crank on it. And every week or something, you crank it another click and it literally spread the bones of his skull mm -hmm. in the palate of his face to create a quarter inch of new bone as an adult. And yeah. he said that it really helped his breathing and all kinds of uh, functional problems he had with his jaw and his breath resolved. And uh, I was wondering if you knew anything about palate spreaders and or Absolutely. really kind of functional manipulations. Absolutely. That is actually how I got into this whole TMD world. Um, I went into dental school wanting to be an oral surgeon. Um, I loved surgery. I assisted. I was a dental assistant for eight years before I went to dental school. Um, I even brought my own scalpel to dental school and uh, my cadaver. Ceramic? Scalpel? No, it was uh, stainless. It was, it was definitely stainless. Yeah. Nice. This is in 1996. I don't think they made ceramic ones then. Mm -hmm. Um 
And, um, and, you know, on the cadaver it was just me and five girls and they were fine with me doing most of the dissection. I loved it. I bet. So uh, I, I loved it. And, you know, I thought, okay, this is something I could do. And then the instructors were, were showing us these, you know, these lateral sept x-rays of these post TMJ surgeries. And I asked them like, so how does the patient function with all those bolts in them? And they were like, we don't know. That's go, not what, good. I go, what do you mean? We don't know. He goes, well, these people don't have very many options and you know, this is trying to help them out, but we don't know. I said, okay. So I was so naive. I thought that if I became a surgeon, I couldn't turn down that surgery. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. I used to joke around that if I was a root canal specialist, I couldn't say, boy, that root canal is too hard, right? That's yeah. like the joke I had. But the truth is they do that all the time. Oh, yeah. But, they, but, but the words they say is that tooth is unsavable. Yeah. That's what they'll say. So, yeah, I decided not to do that. And then when I came out, I mean, I love dentistry. Um, I was doing everything. I was doing wisdom teeth, and crown and bridge. I was doing it all. And my mom is the dentist and she strongly encouraged me to do uh, uh, orthodontics. So I took courses and thankfully the courses I took were functional Mm -hmm. and they would teach us things like expanding the palate, bringing the jaw downward and forward and et cetera. Um, We didn't know very much back then about eating sleep apnea. So oh, I, I lost it for a second. Could you say that again? We didn't know much about what? We, uh, I'm children's. sorry. I'm having a hard time hearing you. Okay. Sorry about that. Go ahead. So um, now we know that one of the best ways of resolving sleep apnea in children is with functional orthodontics where we expand the palate. But that's what I was doing. I was expanding the palate. And remember, the, the roof of the mouth is the floor of the nose. So when you expand the palate, you're increasing their nasal breathing, which is, it's a huge factor. So why is nasal breathing, breathing so much better than like chest breathing? Or mouth breathing. Mouth breathing. Yeah. (laughs) I guess those are not two in the same thing. Yeah. No, no. It would be nasal or or mouth breathing or both. And then what I was actually conflating that with was like diaphragm breathing versus chest breathing. Uh, but yeah, two separate things. My bad. Okay. Uh, yeah, no worries. So when we breathe exclusively through our nose, the air is warmed and moistened before it makes down to the, to the lung. The tissues we have in our nose will help stimulate nitric oxide in our body, which is what we need for blood vessels to open and close. Okay. And when we have a nice, steady nasal breathe, what ends up happening is we maintain normal end tidal CO2 levels. Okay. So, so we, we have way more receptors of CO2 than we do oxygen. I think we only have one or two oxygen receptors in our body. Um, but we have um, uh, hundreds of uh, CO2 receptors. That to me means that CO2 is extremely uh, important. Mm -hmm. Sorry, sorry. Or at the very Uh, least, extremely abundant in the environment. 
Well, it is, but as it relates to us, listen, nitrogen is extremely abundant in the environment, but our body doesn't seem to care that much about it. Good point. Right? It's, it's, it has to do with what our body needs and wants. And like I said, evolution doesn't um, make things that are unnecessary, right? Mm-hmm. So what we know is we have a very narrow window of entitled CO2 tolerance in our body. We essentially need to be above 35 millimeters of mercury and below 45. If we go above 45, um, that could be death. If we go below 35, we could pass out. Okay. Okay, So it's something we need, but we can't have too much. Exactly. So you got to keep that balance. That's right. So um, when we switch to our mouth breathing, we outgas too much CO2. And we just start, you know, our body goes in, our autonomic nervous system is tied in to our CO2 levels. So if our CO2 levels drop too low, we get into a fight or flight mode. Okay. Yeah. And then the more our our, uh, parasympathetic levels are up, it's when our entitled CO2 is in that 40 to 43 range. Okay. That makes sense. A lot of people, when they hear fight or flight mode, I think they picture the all or nothing proposition. It it seems almost like there's a little bit more overlap and and integration between sympathetic and parasympathetic activation. Is it, is it a little bit more complicated than just like you're either in fight or flight or you're not? Actually, it's not really Um, you're, you're in the autonomic nervous system is all or nothing, right? You're either in sympathetic or you're in parasympathetic. And, you know, when you're in sympathetic, for example, your pupils dilate, your heart race goes up, your, your, your gut shuts down, um, you know, uh, the blood vessels get opened up to go to muscles and non-essential functions shut down. Exactly. That's why it's so hard to have sex if you're nervous on a date. Yeah. Well, so erection and orgasm are parasympathetic and sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Respectively? Yes. So the, the acronym we used in, in, in dental school was point and shoot. It's separate systems. So P being parasympathetic, point meaning erection. Gotcha. And shoot being orgasm and shoot and S being sympathetic. Okay. So what, let's unpack that a little bit. Why would that be? Why would that be? Well, so again, you have to always think about it in terms of survival, right? Mm-hmm. If you are in a, a survival moment, right? Wasting your resources on an erection are not conductive to long life. No, that sounds immature. It's not immature. It's death. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's worse. That's, the, that's, that's much worse. That's, <laughs> that's how evolution works. It's like what what allows you to pass on your genes to the next level. And if you can't run away because you're so horny, then you won't make it. Yeah. You'll be distracted and the lion's going to eat you. Yeah. Exactly. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's the okay. thing. Whenever we can um, focus on uh, 
the survival aspect of why we do things, that will go a long way. Yeah. And that's, that's basically an evolutionary perspective, right? Yeah. Okay. So uh, back to the breath and the different types of uh, arousal, sympathetic versus parasympathetic. Um, breath seems to be like the key to regulating that. And it, it's talked about in every society throughout history. Uh, what's the best way for a person who just like regular American without a whole lot of experience or education to, to start taking advantage of this tool that they have at their disposal? So you're asking what steps they can do? Yeah. Like where, where to begin? Like we all breathe. We all like, it's like training somebody to run. Everybody knows how to run, but right. you don't actually know how to do it properly. Right. Good. Great question. So the first thing, if you want to do this during the day, don't start by doing this at night, but during the day, tape your lips and see if you are breathing through your nose or if you're unconsciously breathing through your lips, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, oftentimes patients will tell me, oh, I don't mouth breathe. And I'm like, I'm looking at you right now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And and I'll and I'll say, you know, just parting your lips a little bit, which then breaks the seal, which breaks the suction in the way we're able to breathe through our nose. But when we do that, again, we do that unconsciously because we have to breathe. So first thing you do is tape your lips, breathe through your nose, and make sure you can breathe calmly through your nose that you're not panicking. Right. But it does panic you a little bit at first, huh? If you're not used to it. I mean, it could can. they expect that? Well, as you're doing it, if you're thinking, you know, one of the ways I tell people to tape is to tape their lips in a V mm -hmm. so that the very, very middle is not sealed. Oh, so if you need a escape hatch. <laughs> exactly. You can do it. That gives people less anxiety. Um, but go ahead and breathe through your nose. The, the point is, can you breathe? People who are nasal breathers can comfortably breathe through their nose and have their tape lip shut. It's not a big deal. I do it in my sleep sometimes, and yeah. it actually is great. I sleep better than ever. Yes, I, I, I support that. Very good. So um, it becomes more challenging when you have things like acid reflux. You have to watch out for that. Yeah. So um, that's what you do, number one. So if you're breathing through your nose, then you can do an exercise of like, Five, five, and five, where you inhale for five seconds, nice and slow, hold your breath for five seconds, and then comfortably and easily exhale for five seconds. Okay. And, and then, then hold repeat. there too? No, no, don't hold. Then you go from exhale to inhale. So that sounds like you're going to have a ratio of two to one uh, inhale to exhale time if you include the hold. Does that activate well, the flight or flight response? You're, you're holding. Uh -huh. you're five seconds in, five seconds hold, five seconds exhale. And then immediately re-inhale or? or yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's pretty similar to like the box breath technique. Yes, yes. The box breath technique is great, right? And then you can find out what number works best for you. Does four work better for you? Six work better for you? Whatever works better for you. Right. So that's a great way of getting your body to go more and more into a parasympathetic state. If, on the other hand, you find, wow, I am I am really struggling to breathe through my nose. OK, don't move on to the next step. OK, go see an ENT 
go lavage your nose with some saline nasal rinse. I make uh, my own nasal rinse with essential oils. And yeah, it really clears me out, really clears out the people that use it. Um, Like eucalyptus or something? Yeah, there's eucalyptus in there. We got peppermint, got frankincense. That sounds nice. It's really nice. It's strong, but it works. That's what I would do. And some people, I hate to say it, some people need surgery, right? Uh But like the context of the functional orthodontics is to expand the palate, to drop the palate, because usually people that have a narrow palate have a very high arch Mm -hmm. and that, that occupies nasal breathing space. Got it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. I don't think about that being so intimately connected, the nose and the roof of the mouth, but it is right there. It's right there. I remember reading something about the evolutionary history of humans and the fact that when, with the advent of agriculture, we did a lot less chewing. We started favoring foods that were easy to chew and more stuff that was based, basically made out of sugar, stuff that's carb and not as much fiber. And it's changed the way that our jaws have developed in our mouths. And that this was making the argument that we as a species have a, a mouth that is too small for our teeth and it's changed the way that the way that we breathe. And it's made us a lot of people dysfunctional breathers. Have you ever heard of that? Yes. And that, and I believe that as well, when we look at, and this is why I get very irritated by orthodontists who say that crowded teeth are due to genetics, Mm -hmm. because that is not true for the vast majority of the time. That is not true. What is the alternative? So when we look at, skulls and the, you know, from before the industrial revolution on people had wide palates, big developed jaws, and they even had space for behind their wisdom teeth. Oh, wow. Right. So they had all this and evolution does not change in 300 years. So, and anyone that thinks that we went from being nice wide arch, having gaps in our teeth and strong jaws to crowded teeth that need amputation to make them all fit and they think that's genetics is not a valuable scientist so you're you're thinking that's definitely the environment not the genetics a thousand percent like there's i mean there's rare exceptions but the vast majority of the time it's from not not breastfeeding long enough that was my Um, next question and uh, why is breastfeeding so important for tmj health and airways and, and straight teeth in general so what you're doing when you're properly breastfeeding is the nipple goes inside the mouth, the child or the infant puts the, their tongue on the base of the nipple and then rolls the back of their tongue up on the roof of the mouth and kind of squirts the milk down their throat. Create a little seal. Suction. Create a little seal. They, they, they seal with their lips, that, which is also imperative. And they create a suction. And they create normal swallow, right? Now, the rest of the time, they're still supposed to swallow that way, mm-hmm. okay? even when there's no nipple. And it's, we swallow two to 3,000 times a day. And every time we do that, we're developing the palate because the bone is very soft, right? Mm-hmm. Now, on the other hand, if you're bottle feeding, right? The classic, you know, visual of a bottle is you got this nipple 
that's not as soft as a human nipple. And it's also as, way longer. And longer and produces more milk. Yeah. Like each suckle will produce way more milk than from a mom's breast. Yeah, yeah they got to work for it a little bit on there. <laughs> right. But more importantly, the nipple that's harder presses the tongue down and the child has to use their cheek muscles, their buccinators to suck the milk out. And the using of the, of the cheek muscles collapses the arch. Which is good. No. Bad. It's bad. It, it squeezes the, the, the arch in. It makes oh, the mouth oh, more narrow. It laterally. Laterally. I'm sorry. We're, we're not visual, right? So, yeah, it goes sideways because the cheek muscles that we're using, we're sucking in. Gotcha. Right? So now um, you have no stability pushing out. That's right. And then the other thing that, you know, prior to the Industrial Revolution we did was as soon as the infant or shortly after the in infant developed teeth, they would give them foods to chew and they had to chew foods, real foods, not a puree of peas. Yeah. And that muscle activity in their jaw develops their mandible, like the vertical height. I mean, we, I mean, we have the skulls to prove it. We, we look at Aboriginal societies that do this sort of thing. We can see it in them, right? It is not, it's, it's, it's not rocket science. Anyone that, that adheres to the belief that crowded teeth is predominantly caused by genetics and can only be resolved by, or the best way to resolve it is amputating perfectly healthy teeth to make them all fit in there. Is is either intellectually stubborn or they're just lazy. I, I like when you call it amputating teeth because I've never heard it used that way, and it sounds much more, uh, you know, startling. It's like amputating a, a limb. If well, I mean, not like why you would you want to amputate? Yeah, well, you know, uh, why would you want to amputate a perfectly healthy tooth if you don't need to? Yeah, you definitely wouldn't. I've had several. Pulled. I got all my wisdom teeth pulled and mm -hmm. um, or amputated. And yeah, I definitely would have preferred not to have to do that. But there was no space. There's yeah. still no space. I still have crowding back there. I've gone through all kinds of stuff trying to address it. Mm -hmm. But so is this does that mean that we could essentially fix this problem if we changed our food system? Well, it's not that we're changing our food system. We're changing our habits. So, but I'll leave it at my, my wife breastfed our son for almost two years. And, you know, he's in an appliance now for me to expand him and he's eight. Mm -hmm. He's been in it for a year or two. Um, so it's not that, you know, it, it can be enough because, you know, indigenous cultures, they did it for three to five years. The breastfeeding? The breastfeeding, which in modern society is very challenging. Oh yeah, you'll get mocked. Yeah, which is which is an awful shame. It's like they'll woman will feel chastised for not breastfeeding, and she'll feel chastised for breastfeeding. It's it's absolutely ridiculous. It is Just stay in your own lane, dude. My daughter's your own business. Almost four, and we had her breastfeeding until she was almost two, and she definitely mm -hmm. has not forgot about it. She's still pretty interested in my wife's breasts. <laughs> okay. Yes, yeah. it seems like something that's just I, I, they. They really, really enjoy breastfeeding kids. 
Like it's you know, not like it was really hard to get her to stop doing it after. So uh, I, I told my mom to go now, honey, it really would be great if we could breastfeed for at least a year. Right. And my wife's a pharmacist and she's like, well, I was thinking about doing it for six months and going back to work. I said, well, and then I, of course, I showed her slides. I showed her explanations. Bottom line, it was the best thing for our son. And that's why she decided to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And thank God we could afford it. Like she could stay home for a couple of years. We could afford that. Yeah. Um, We couldn't afford it forever, but that's what we did. Yeah. It's a huge pain in the butt for the mom. It is. Especially if you're working. but But when you're working and for the household. So now. Uh, when the one year came up, I kind of like coyly said to my wife, I was like, you know, uh, if you did two years, it'd be even better. Right. <laughs> and, and she was like, and then she fussed back at me like, what, two years. Right. But then she admitted to me that she absolutely loved it. Oh, like, good. She would, she, you know, her and my son would make eye contact during breastfeeding. Uh, he would like, like pet her breasts. It was mommy and me time. Ultimate you know, bonding. She, uh, it's the best. It's the best. And I remember our obstetrician did a thing for new parents to teach us like, you know, what to do, what not to do, things like that, where to buy, buy a swaddle, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he was like, he was like, he was saying, now moms, even if you're breastfeeding, pump some in a bottle and let daddy feed the baby because it's like don't be selfish you know the, it hurts daddy's feelings when he can't breath you know like feed the child and all that right uh-huh. and i just i just turned to my wife i said okay listen you are not allowed to get a shit about my feelings okay you do what's best for the kid yeah that is a good uh, i think that's the correct perspective to take but yeah so you were saying how the the dads sometimes get a little bit um, you know, hurt by not being able to. Well, that's breastfeed. that's that's what the you know gynecologist was saying, and and uh, you know, I, I was just like, listen, I I don't I don't care about my feelings. That's yeah, we're good. It is cool to be able to feed the kid. I, I loved doing that when yes. with the bottle feed and all that stuff. But yeah, yes. you're right. It's not about the dad. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, no, when I when I had to do it, I loved it. I yeah, it's, it's a good it. experience. It, but yeah, it's it's a whole nother thing when it's food that you've created with your body and you're giving it to this child that you also created. That's the ultimate bonding experience. It's really great. <clears throat> okay, so I have a, a note here that about delta wave sleep and how that is related to palate expansion. And yes. I, I got this from your notes. Uh, what exactly is the connection there? Okay, so there's four stages of sleep, stage one, two, three, and REM. And Delta is stage three. And that is where we do that. That is where we receive almost a hundred percent of our growth hormone. Wow. So that is why we need uh, Delta in order for the child to grow. That's what I always tell my kids, except not as detailed. (laughs) Yeah. We need our sleep to grow. So, um, you know, there's an interesting phenomenon in the sleep apnea world uh, called rebound. So let's say someone is, um, let's say someone 
is having sleep apnea and their sleep is being retarded. Okay. They're not getting the sleep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, they're, they're having interruptions, whether it's due to sleep apnea or something else, they're just having uh, interruptions. And then there's an intervention like CPAP, tonsil and adenoid surgery, um, you know, something like that, and, or even palatal expansion. So there is something called a rebound where if you had been very deficient in Delta, your body will uh, make extra Delta. So instead of 25% of your sleep being Delta, you'll have 40% of your sleep Delta for a short period. It'll taper off. Uh But that means you're getting a surge of growth hormone in your body. Nice. And And that's actually incidentally why I dislike CPAP in children so much because they're wearing uh, headgear and this headgear on their head that's restoring their sleep. Now they're getting a surge of growth hormone and while they're in a headgear, which research now shows that this shoves the maxilla backwards. Oh, right. Could you explain that? What is the yeah. maxilla and why was it forward? So the maxilla is the upper jaw. And, you know, there is an ideal location for it. There just, there just is. Okay. And when you're wearing a headgear and, and like in the old fashioned, archaic backwards way of orthodontics of using like headgear to pull the, sh- the, the jaws back, these are for people that have like an overbite. Mm-hmm. And rather than bring the jaw forward, the lower jaw forward, they decide to bring the upper jaw back. That seems way harder. It is way hard. And, you know, they're basically shoving it back. So, uh, and they're using a headgear. They have an anchorage in their, either in their neck or in the back of their skull. So when you're wearing a CPAP, you have to have a strap around your head to keep the CPAP on your nose. Because if it's not tight on the child's head, it'll leak. The air pressure will leak. And it won't work. No, you're not getting enough air pressure to open up the airway. Okay. And so how does that apply to kids? So in, in, when CPAPs are applied to children, what we find is obviously the child with sleep apnea has been denied their full allowance of growth hormone because they're not getting into Delta much because they have interruptions in their sleep. When we now resolve their sleep apnea in the moment with a CPAP, they now get a rebound of growth hormone. And now it's, it's kind of like, okay, so you're growing, you're a growing child. I'm now going to inject 30 milligrams of growth hormone in you while you've got a headgear wrapped around your head. Okay. The maxilla is going to go back faster. Okay. Right? So the purpose of a CPAP is not to shove the maxilla back. The purpose is to just hold the strap of the CPAP is to hold it against the face, mm-hmm. right? Um, but they're getting a headgear effect in, from traditional orthodontics with, a, with the strap that goes around their head. And we, they did it before and after with kids that had CPAP. And sure enough, when they did a follow-up, they found out their boning markers over their maxilla was way backwards. 
Wow. And they even freely admitted that these people will now need maxillary surgery to correct it. That sucks. It, one of the, to me, one of the biggest things that does. Yeah. So then what do you do for kids who have sleep apnea? We expand. You do the expansion. Expand. Yeah, absolutely. It works. It, it works better than CPAP and it works better than tonsil adenoidectomy, which is something we can't say in adults because TNA removal, tonsil adenoid removal, you know, you'll get about 50, maybe 80% improvement in sleep apnea if they have huge tonsils. Um, but they'll still have sleep apnea or it'll come back and it doesn't work well if the kid is obese. Uh-huh. Right. Whereas if you have palatal expansion on a narrow palate child who also has enlarged tonsils and adenoids, which actually happens often it, uh, and they're obese, it'll still work. Hmm. So this, a lot of this stuff is reminding me of a book I read a long time ago by Weston Price. Yes. Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. Generation. That's right. The, that is the best book written on nutrition or that will ever be written on nutrition. And it was written in the 30s, right? It's really old. Or this, yep. the research was being done in the 20s and 30s. That's right. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, it's all about just like this guy, he went around the world and collected data on all these different tribes and societies and figured out what they ate. And kind of started making correlations between what they ate and how they lived and then these physical disabilities or, or, or you know, functional people too. But yeah. um, really interesting stuff. But it seems like that's enough time for really to get a, a, a change in the way that people view these kind of holistic issues. I don't feel that in, in the world of, of orthodontics. When I went and got my brace and stuff, when I would try to mention really anything that was outside of the very niche uh, expertise of the guy I was talking to, it was just like looking, I mean, just like nothing. I get no, I would get no feedback and I, and I get it on a professional level. Like you have responsibilities to, you know, do one thing really well. And there's liabilities involved if you're just, you know, free balling and just spitting whatever you think could be the truth or connections that aren't necessarily verified by research. So I understand that they're just kind of professional things that get in the way, but that's why it seems like over years and years and years, this kind of thinking would kind of infiltrate and make its way into popular culture, but it doesn't seem like it really has. Do you, do you feel like that at all? Yeah. So everything you said, I agree with, except for one where you said, you know, some of the things that may be fringe and there isn't a lot of research on it. There's a ton of research on it. There you go. They, this, is, this is either intellectual stubbornness, um, gross neglect. I don't know. Is it just that it's so much, there's so much more complexity when you consider all these things just at the same time? Well, I'll give you an anecdotal example. You can now make enough room for all the teeth most of the time, even still using brackets and wires. Hmm. It's a technique called passive self-ligation. I did it for 10 years. It's great. I had a patient. She was in her 80s. And she had crowded teeth. And she goes, I really want to do, you know, get my teeth straight. You know, my whole life I've had these crooked teeth. I said, okay. So I sent her over to the orthodontist. And the one who I knew does passive self-ligation. And then she's got the braces on, no wires. She goes, yeah, he says he's getting me ready. He's going to shave down my teeth to make it fit. 
I said, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean shave down your teeth? She goes, well, he said, I'm crowded. There's no way to get a fit. So I called him up on his cell phone. I said, what's going on here? He's like, he's like, well, yeah, I was just going to do it this way. It'll be faster. I said, um, the reason I sent it to you, sent the patient to you, was because you're going to use passive self-ligation and not minimize the space inside the mouth. If anything, you'll maximize it, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, okay, if you want, if you want, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it. And I said, well, why wasn't it your first choice? And, you know, I really, you know, busted his balls about it. And he said, you know, um, it's because if, if we did shave them, there's less of my time that's necessary. My staff can see the patient more. Yeah. That's and if, and if, and if I, if I have to do this, then I have to do more work. I thought you were going to say it was because that she was an elderly patient and no. they're like, yeah, but no. no, they still move. Yeah. Just little, little person to person, um, effects like that, where this doctor chose this technique just because it was easier can end up turning into like, that's just the way we do it culturally. That's right. Wow. Let's see. I'm going to check my question list real quick. Mm-hmm. All right. So I, I made it through all of the technical and professional questions that I wrote from reading your bio and stuff. Mm-hmm. And now I have one page that's just labeled random questions. So okay. I'm going to go through that a little bit. Um, oh, do you notice any kind of patterns or correlations between people, the way they breathe and the types of personalities that they express? Um, do you th- like the, the heart of the question really is like, do you think that breathing is more than just like how we get our air, but is it more tied into how we experience our world around us? Well, I mean, it's a tough question to answer. Um, if we're mouth breathing, for example, um, that can actually make us more anxious. Mm-hmm. So if we're more anxious, we're going to perceive the world differently. We're not going to be as connected as we are to the whole planet. And we're going to be much more fa- focused on what's happening right in front of us. And more selfish. Yeah, because survival kicks yeah. in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of exactly where I was going. Like, I feel like if more people considered their breath and, and the way they sleep and these fundamental things, the way they walk, the way they move. Uh, these fundamental things that we all do every day, all day, pretty much um, and not sleep, but hopefully yeah. you're breathing all day. And uh, most people just don't even think about it. And I didn't think about it for most of my life. And when I started considering those things and not just considering that they're happening, but considering the way that they're happening, it changed the way I function, changed the way I experience the world because I suddenly felt like I had these tools at my disposal that I could make adjustments. And I could also recognize when things are not going so well. Like if I'm feeling super anxious and then I saw, I'll suddenly just tune into my breathing and say like, well, how am I breathing? And it's, I'm all up in my chest. I'm, I'm mouth breathing. I'm shallow and things are like, it's a direct reflection of my experience it inside my head. And so if I then I take that and I'm like, all right, well, I know I have some physical control over these things. I'll pull the breath down into my diaphragm. I'll start trying to slow it down and deepen it and things like that. And then my experience will start to change. Exactly. Pretty powerful tool. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Um, what about meditation? So are you a meditator? Mm. Yeah, I, I, God, I used to do it so much more. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but yeah, medicate and especially in these times in these crazy, crazy times. Um, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with meditation. Do you have a particular practice that you like more than more than others, or do you kind of do your own thing? No, I mean, it starts with the breathing and the mental state that I want to get into, which is, um, more relaxed and in the now, um, I did transcendental meditation. I like that. I think it's great. Did you go to a uh, class? I, I, I got the mantra and pay the money like, yes. to the legit TM. I, exactly. That's what I did. Cool. Um, and I thought it was great. And there's EEG studies on it. It's a, it's very, the guy that the, the guru that founded it was an engineer. So oh. he wanted, he wanted to like quantify it. He wanted to prove that it was coming. Yeah. That's what I love about this new age kind of synthesis of mysticism and science where it's possible, where you can have more uh, quantitative data and things that are backed up by experiments and to, to explain some of these more mystical appearing phenomena, like uh, altered states of consciousness and things like mm -hmm. that being able to be explained scientifically. It's, it's going to be big for our species, more people practicing these things and, and taking full advantage of these abilities that they had all along is going to lead to some overall global changes, hopefully. Yeah, I think so too. I honestly think so too. Cool. All right. Well, I have reached all my questions and great. we have covered a great deal of information. Do you have anything else that you would like to talk about before we wrap this thing up? No, I, you know, you, you've been a great host. You've asked great engaging questions, which I really appreciate. And, um, you know, the two, I mean, it's been two hours, but almost, and it went by very quickly. It did. It, this was really informative. It felt kind of like a mix between a, a doctor's appointment and a podcast. Mm. I really appreciate your guidance on some of this stuff. This is, like I said before, these are things that everybody, everybody does every day. So it, it's almost an afterthought and people don't give it nearly the attention that it deserves because it really can have a profound effect on how you feel. Exactly. I totally agree. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Thank you again. And I'll talk to you later. Okay. All the best. Have a good day. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Ramble by the River. If you'd like to subscribe to the exclusive Patreon for bonus content and extra episodes, go to patreon.com slash river. That's patreon.com slash river. Thank you so much for joining me, and I'll talk to you next time. Go get some sleep, guys. Bye. Just now, say it with your chest now. Uh, yeah.